This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. From MPB Think Radio, this is Now You're Talking, the show about the most interesting people and stories of Mississippi. I'm your host, Marshall Ramsey, editor-at-large and cartoonist with Mississippi Today. Hey, that summer box office smash Top Gun Maverick, well, it sure left its mark on moviegoers, and I'm one of them. I'm a huge fan, love airplanes. So today we've invited pilots, Lieutenant Colonel Lance Bowen of the 172nd Airlift in Flowood, Mississippi, to talk about the history and impact that they have had on the state, as well as the impact of the Mississippi Air Force bases on the nation. And they tell their story and how they became pilots, their past and current missions, and their take on Top Gun flying scenes from the film. You know, a significant portion of America's military strength is vested in its reserve forces, coupled with the federal mission to provide the U.S. Air Force and the Department of Defense with a trained, combat-ready strategic military air force. This 172nd Airlift Wing provides the state of Mississippi support in the event of a national emergency, maintains peace and order, and supports civil defense and pre-attack planning. It's based here in Jackson at Allen C. Thompson Field. And the Air Guard facility is named after Charles L. Sullivan, the former lieutenant governor of Mississippi and a longtime member and pilot in the unit as well. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Lieutenant Colonel Lance Bolin from the 172nd Airlift in Flowood, Mississippi. Welcome to the show, Colonel. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, and thank you for your service. Thank you very much, sir. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. Thanks yeah, for we've had a chance to talk a little bit, um, discovered a couple things. Number one, we're both dads of three kids. And I think that's probably where it all ends because you are a very skilled and proficient pilot, and I'm a cartoonist. So, but anyway, I'm just so glad you joined me today. This is going to be fantastic. Absolutely, glad to be here. Thank you. So, you were telling me a little bit ahead of time. Number one, you are not only a C-17 pilot, and for those folks around the Jackson area, you have seen C-17s. They are the really big airplanes with four engines that fly really low and make some noise. They're pretty incredible aircraft, and you get to fly that, but you also used to fly fighters. You flew F-15s as well previously, I guess when you were in active service. You know, I did. I really, I've been what they call a guard baby. I've been oh. in the National Guard my entire career. I started with Mississippi in the uh, Meridian unit at Keyfield and went to Columbus Air Force Base for pilot training there. And once there, it was kind of an unusual event. I was transferred to the state of Louisiana for several years in the F-15s. Just some random things worked out and it uh, went that direction. So I was able to fly the F-15 from 2005 till approximately 2010 when I came back to Mississippi to the 172nd. So the F-15, for folks that may not know, has been America's air superiority fighter, I guess, since the mid-70s. Just absolutely incredible aircraft. Has a huge record of many different, I mean, Israel flies it. I know some other countries fly it. It has a really great record in combat. It's done really well. But it has to be absolutely one of the most fun planes to fly just because it's, what well, it's an F-15. It was incredibly fun to fly, but it's also a very big workload, too. There's a lot going on with it, so I don't know that my brain power could uh, could handle it uh, now after three kids, like we talked about, but um, <laughs> it uh, it's a lot of fun. It really is. It's also a lot of work, but it was a blessing to be able to do it, and I'm thankful to have had that experience. How did you make the transition from fighters into the cargo? So I was born in Mississippi and Meridian, actually. So it was really kind of coming home for me just to come back to the state of Mississippi where my family is. And this was a premier guard unit, the 172nd really is. And just a great airplane, 
a whole different mission, but honestly, it's the greatest mission I've had in the Air Force. Very different jet, but an amazing platform. And just the mission we do there is second to none, and we can talk about what those missions are for sure. The F-15 was an amazing mission, amazing jet, but, you know, there's nothing better than a C-17 and a 172nd. It's really not. So the C-17 was designed to replace the previous plane that was at the 172nd, the C-141, is kind of the mid-range, mid-size jack-of-all-trades cargo aircraft. But I tell you what, the mission that it has had since it's come into service, and I know the 172nd has been right there on the tip of the spear when it comes to doing things, everything from being an air ambulance to being able to travel, you know, pretty much from here to Iraq, you know, here to Germany. I know y'all have spent many, many, many weekends going back and forth halfway around the globe. Tell us a little bit about the airplane and how Jackson ended up getting it, because we were very fortunate. We got actually one of the ones straight out of the factory instead of you just kind of getting hand-me-down planes. You know, we really did. So Jackson was the first guard unit. The 172nd was the absolute first guard unit to get the C-17s at all. There's since been several others that were stood up in uh, New York. Uh, Memphis, being close to home, has them now. Martinsburg, West Virginia, and uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, just recently standing up a unit of C-17s. But we were the first guard unit to get them. Active duty, from my understanding, really didn't want to give them to the guard. But Mississippi has such a rich history, Sonny Montgomery being one that just championed so many great things in the Armed Services Committee for the state. And the diverse mission really is attractive. It was second to none. The plane can do everything. Like you said, we go from one mission, we'll be carrying the SEAL teams places to the next mission, we turn the back into a hospital, and we're doing an aeromedevac from Germany back to Andrews Air Force Base and then back to Jackson. I mean, we do everything. The reach is global. It combined with air refueling, you can reach all over the world without ever having to stop. And that the air refueling from Meridian, Mississippi, the 186th air refueling wing there at Keyfield, which was another really interesting thing, the Key Brothers invented air refueling. And, man, that is just the backbone to the global reach of the Air Force now. So Mississippi has had a major impact on that. I know. I'm very fortunate on August 20th I will be moderating a panel on the Mississippi Book Festival, and I'm going to have two World War II authors. One is going about the book called Dan Lucky, which is about Lucky Luckadoo, who was – he's still alive. He's a 101-year-old bomber pilot, co-pilot, and a B-17 in the 100th and part of the 8th Air Force. And it tells wow. his story. Yeah, no, it's just absolutely an incredible story, uh, what he went through and how he survived and literally earned the nickname Lucky. And then the other one is about B-29s bombing Japan and Curtis LeMay. So anyway, when I was talking to both the authors, I said, no, you don't understand – the history of aviation in Mississippi is literally off the charts. We've got the Key Brothers, like you mentioned. Their plane, Ole Miss, is hanging in the Smithsonian Institute in the main building. That's how important it was. And I, I got to think about that. Number one, that is like a total hold my adult beverage moment to stand out on a little little, little walkway out in front of an airplane <laughs> pouring gasoline into an engine as you're flying around. Those guys... They were. I, know, I don't know how they did it, and they stayed airborne for like sixty-seven days. If I'm, if I remember that correctly. Yeah, that's nuts. That, that's totally nuts. And I mean, I mean, props to them because obviously that has totally changed aviation for the better on that. But it worked. I know. I don't see how Meridian could ever have anything but refuelers. I mean, it just makes sense that it would be there, doesn't it? Yeah, I think they tried to change it out to the, a small cargo plane or something at one point. Everybody's like, no, 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 no. We gotta have, <laughs> we, we gotta have KC-135s here. This would be great. 
But yeah, you're right. And then you have the Dutch flyers who trained here in Jackson, you know, during World War II. It was the Netherlands, when they were overrun by Germany, Hap Arnold actually, you know, said, no, you're going to train these guys over in Jackson, Mississippi. And if I remember correctly, I think even Delta left from here on its first flight, too. It didn't go to Atlanta. It went to Louisiana, which kind of surprised me a little bit because I thought Delta always went to Atlanta. Well, but, you know, Delta started in Monroe, Louisiana. Yeah, that's right. And that's probably what it had to do with. Yeah. So it's just, it's amazing. Like you said, our rich tradition, and, and you mentioned Columbus, and I'm going to talk to them in a little bit about their mission as well. And of course, you trained up there. So when you trained, you started, I guess, the T-38, so, obviously. Well, I was in the T-37 to begin with. Yeah. I think they don't have those anymore. They've since replaced it with the T-6. That is a fantastic trainer. I haven't had the opportunity to fly it, but I hear it is amazingly fun. And then I went to the T-38 after that, which, again, it's up there with maybe one of the best airplanes I've ever flown. I love it. It is just fast. Just stay. All you have to do is stay fast in it. There's not a radar or a weapon system to contend with like the F-15, which those get complicated and take a lot of thinking and a lot of, a lot of smarts. So the T-38, it's just fast. If you just don't get slow in it, it's a great little sports car. Yeah, it's been around a long time, too, because I remember I've got a really great picture of my father-in-law in the 60s hopping out of one of those. So they've been they've been flying it for a long time. So let's talk a little bit, of, like, obviously, the mission of the Guard. The Guard's been in the Jackson area for a while. Tell us a little bit about the history of it. So from when I got there, like you mentioned, they, uh, you know, they were with uh, C-130s and the 141s and the C-17s. I believe the first one got there around 2003. Well, I showed up 2010, so they were well into the mission of the C-17 at that point. So I haven't known it other than what we've been doing with that mission. And our bread-and-butter mission, if you would, at that time when I showed up in 2010 was the Air Medivac mission. And we had about three departures a week leaving for Ramstein, Germany, and Lonsdale Hospital over there. It's the major European theater hospital that we would evacuate any of our are wounded and hurt airmen, and really, for that matter, all branches of service out of the Middle East and everything, all the operations we have going on over there. And then we had other missions that would support, we called them the mystery mission, if you would. It was whatever else the Air Force had going on, but so much of our airlift was dedicated to that medevac mission. If you were hurt around 2006 to 2019, the odds of you being on a Mississippi aircraft coming home or getting out of theater to Lonsdale or to Andrews or to San Antonio to burn centers there, it was very high. I mean, we did some amazing work, and I, that has stuck with me and always will, as really not some of the best missions that I have ever been a part of. When you look at the statistics, the chances of you get to a hospital and if you get to Germany in an amount of time, your chances of survival go up considerably. And I know the survival rates were raised considerably by the incredibly great job that you did. When you were flying that, did you like fly out of Baghdad and then you went to Germany? Was that how that worked or did you have to go out in the field yes. when you landed? Well, the answer is yes to both of those. We Normally, we would go straight into the major airlift hubs of theater, Bagram Air Base, Balad in Iraq, those hubs and what we call like the medevac dust-off helicopters would be bringing any hurt from forward operating bases back to those facilities where they could get them stable enough for the ride, for the trip from theater to Germany. Now, if your injury was severe enough, and we had some of these, like such as head traumas and things where the flight surgeon might clear them really for one flight, but the less up and down and pressurization that they would have to deal with, the better then they would coordinate for air refueling out of Germany or wherever it needed to be to meet us where we wouldn't even have to stop 
back in Germany. We would just take them from theater all the way back across the Atlantic to Andrews or whatever care they needed, whatever level. We would take them directly there as fast as possible. I mean, we had a very good track record. If you were hurt, we had you in a major hospital within 24 hours. That's incredible. Phenomenal, really. It It really is. So for those who have not been to an air show and actually got to walk into a C-17, it's a truck. I mean, it really is. It's a very high-performance, very capable, and very acrobatic truck, but it is a truck. And so when you're talking about the hospital mission, is there like a piece that they can slide into it and literally it turns it into like a little flying hospital? Well, the back of the aircraft itself is very versatile. It's set up in a way that it can be configured within an hour to fit whatever mission we're doing. If it's going to be a hospital, we have the medical team that is going to be with us basically come in and our load masters in the back who are experts at this. They set it up almost the stanchions and the litters and whatever level of care that they're going to need to intensive care units in the back. They basically configure the floor, the walls, have oxygen hookups. They turn the back of the airplane into what they need, and they can really do that in about an hour, hour and a half, whatever the needs of the mission are. That's incredible. I mean, it sounds like when they designed it, they just made it into a Swiss Army knife. It's really, that's a great explanation. That's really what it is. And they can take all that stuff out and roll an M1 Abrams tank in if we need to, or helicopters, or whatever cargo we need to get where it needs to be going. Whatever needs to be done, it's kind of a blank slate back there. It's plug and play, whatever you want to make it. I remember at, I think it was Haley Barber's inauguration. I can't remember if it was the first or second one. There was a flyover with the C-17, and it banked, and it did a, you know, just a really tight turn. And it looked like it was an F-15 fighter plane. I just was like, okay, that's really scary how incredibly <laughs> – but, but when you were coming in and out of Afghanistan or coming in and out of Iraq, you obviously had to make what was called a combat landing and a combat takeoff because there were people, bad guys, that had shoulder fire missiles that could take an engine out on you when you're taken out. So you had to be nimble. And that was one of the beauties of that aircraft is that you actually can come in and out pretty quickly. Absolutely. The descent rate on that airplane is like nothing I've ever seen. I fly uh, a larger Boeing airplanes in the airlines now as well. And it's really a tough transition when I've been flying the C-17 several days in a row to go back to airline flying because they just do not fly anything close to the same. You have to plan your descent in the normal larger commercial airplanes where we plan our descent in the C-17, but we plan it a lot closer in and we plan it at a lot higher rate. You know, this is amazing to me, but all four thrust reversers, which is on the engines, when you typically land, the thrust reversers come out to put the engines in reverse thrust to help you stop. The C-17s will actually do that in flight if you want them to. You're kidding me. You wow. a, no, it's a little violent. But your rate of descent will go to around 20,000 feet a minute, which for a big airplane like that is incredible. It is scary. Uh, It really is. But what it was designed to do, it does very, very well. The steep descent, the brakes on that thing are amazing. The tires on it are incredible. For that airplane, which is almost 600,000 pounds if it's fully loaded, will take off and land both in a 3,000-foot strip. Yeah, so that's like your little general aviation airport. Yes. Yeah. I mean, your general aviation airport's usually going to have maybe a 5,000-foot strip if it's, you know, a mid-sized general aviation airfield. 
So that's unheard of for big airplanes. Well, as on behalf of all of us airline passengers, I'm kind of glad you don't corkscrew on, uh, you know, your your, <laughs> your your plane into the airport. I mean, I know you can do it in the C-17, but I think that might be a little bit rough if you're no, coming yeah, coming you, into Hartsfield. You, you would need your seatbelt. Yep, you would need your seatbelt for sure. It'll You'll go weightless a little bit in that. Yeah, I know sometimes you, you go down to Camp Shelby and practice down there doing those kind of landings. Like I said, if, if you've ever seen it, it's amazing. And so, like I said, you have way too much fun for a living. So stop it. <laughs> I know sometimes I'm like, whoa, they pay me for this? This is great. But then when we do a 24-hour duty day mission, then you realize, oh, wait, yeah, this is, we're, this, this is pretty tough. It's time for us to take a quick break. Stay tuned. This is Now You're Talking on MPB Think Radio. What can you do with the MPB Radio app? Listen live, hear local news, view the schedule, make a contribution, listen to shows on demand, and interact with social media. Get the app for your smartphone now. From MPB Think Radio, this is Now You're Talking, the show about the most interesting people and stories of Mississippi. I'm your host, Marshall Ramsey, editor-at-large and cartoonist with Mississippi Today. I have the pleasure of speaking with Lieutenant Colonel Lance Bolin from the 172nd Airlift in Flowood, Mississippi. So I take it when you're flying across the globe, you have backup pilots and you have a refrigerator and a microwave. So that kind of thing. And a bathroom. <laughs> we have yeah. a we have a refrigerator and a bathroom, which is way more than I had on the F-15, so I truly appreciate it. Um, <laughs> you mean they don't, but, have, they don't have a microwave on an F-15? I mean, you know. No, they don't. The first time I got to the C-17 and they had a coffee maker, I thought I'd had, I knew I was home. I knew I had made the right choice. <laughs> See, there you go. So let the fighter guys have all the glory. Forget it, Maverick. You can keep your F-18 or whatever you want to, S-72, SR-72 or whatever yeah. is your flying so. now i miss it i do miss it on clear days with lots of gas and uh you know no huge responsibilities there's not anything more fun in the world than the f-15 but you cross the atlantic in it a few times and then cross the atlantic in the c-17 and you won't go back yeah i'd imagine flying across atlanta sitting on a bedpan wouldn't be a lot of fun i know it that's i know that's not how it works but i just figured but it's close yeah it's pretty close i mean you're strapped into an ejection seat and you're in a dry suit because the water's you know way too cold if anything did go wrong it is not comfortable it's really not fun yeah forget this charles Lindbergh stuff you know you'd rather have no. a coffee maker yeah i get it i, <laughs> yes. I, I I'd rather have a coffee maker in a bathroom all right so let me ask you i guess the question of the moment you know obviously top gun maverick came out and you're a little bit younger than i am it came out the first top gun came out when i graduated from high school and i mean i wanted to become a pilot Obviously, I didn't. But that said, it was an amazing movie. I loved it. So I was coming into this one thinking, cool, airplanes. I'm pretty happy about this. And I got a lot more, obviously. There was character growth and stuff that I was not expecting. But I loved it. Now, but I'm not a pilot. So I've never flown a fighter jet. So I, I know you've probably seen the movie. Oh, yeah. I, I take have. it you probably watched it with a critical eye, I would imagine, thinking, yeah, right. I'm not going to be able to do that in my C-17. But Kind of give us a little bit of a take what you thought of the movie and kind of what you thought of the flying scenes in it. So the first one, like you said, um, gosh, that movie shaped my life. It came out when I was eight years old. And, uh, you know, I had to sneak into the movies to see it. Mom thought I was, eh, it was a little racy for me. And now when I look back on it, I'm like, oh, gosh, I didn't remember some of those parts. I haven't let my kids see the first one yet, but they have seen the second <laughs> one. 
And, you know, the first one after I saw it, I knew that's what I wanted to do. I had no doubt that I wanted to do that with my life. It was a long road to get there. I had bad eyesight and all the rest, which is a whole other story. But I went into, you know, sequels are never as good as the first. So I went into this one with all the hype. I went in with very low expectations, thinking, great, it's going to be another Iron Eagle kind of thing. Um, <laughs> which I like Iron Eagle, but right, but not that yeah. was the first one, you know. I thoroughly enjoyed the movie. I thought it was really good. I thought they did very well, like you said, with some of the character development. But as far as uh, the flying aspect goes, super impressed. It was all real flying, and they made very good use of you know, what the F-18 is designed to do, the tactics of it, the mission they employed it on. I thought, very well done, guys. Somebody did some really good research on it. The flying scenes were all super realistic because they were real. The actors were obviously in the backseat of a two-seat version, but made it look like they were in the front. I thought it was great. The, the Gs were real. The capabilities of what the jet does was very real. Not for a spoiler, flares don't act like that. Flares don't blow missiles up. But other right. than that, that was that was the only really unrealistic part I could find of it. I thought it was great. The camaraderie ship they displayed very well of, you know, what fighter squadrons are about. The competition. It's almost like a sports team. Everybody's competing with each other all the time, but you're pushing each other to get better and really have one big goal to work together to achieve. And they did a good job of displaying all that. I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was great. I just can imagine you hopping down the piano and singing Great Balls of Fire. <laughs> no. Is okay. that part of it, so too? That, that part doesn't happen. Okay. You know, actually we'll, we, we tend more to burn the piano, and that's a whole other story in itself. Okay. But, yeah, well, that um, sounds like a, that sounds like a good a, a sequel to the show as well. On that, yeah, yeah, I know. Like I said, I just didn't expect to find a plot. I was like, oh my gosh, there's a plot here. This is great. Although I will say that you know, it only took me what twenty years to get past Goose dying. Spoiler alert. And I the, know. you know, and that, know. and they ripped that scab right back off. And I mean. They did. They couldn't have picked a better actor to uh, portray Goose's son, though, and Meg Ryan's son. Oh my gosh! Yeah, he looks like he really could be—he really could be their son. And he did a good job. I thought it was great. He did. It was it's so funny. Spoiler alert: There's a scene toward the end where he and Maverick are kind of having a moment on the ground, and it was like. It was literally like he just transformed into his dad, and that was because really, you could see his dad doing that, which I thought was great. Um, now, could you take the C-17 down that canyon? as well <laughs> um you know what we do low level missions like that we really do that is something that we train for and do and there's one in europe that i really want to do it's a very famous low level where if you see sometimes they're taking pictures of uh your oh like, yeah mountain. yeah i've seen that yep it's called like you know, the canyon run and we do those yes we absolutely do those missions now we don't do them at 600 knots like the um <laughs> like the f-18 was in the we do them more around 300 knots, so about half the speed for a big airplane. That's moving. Yeah, it's, when you get down close to the ground, 300 knots is very fast. Absolutely. I mean, that's you know miles an hour. If you're that's roughly 350, 360 miles an hour across the ground. Yeah, I did it in a P-51 Mustang. I wasn't not flying, obviously, but yeah, we were pretty close to the ground and we were flying about that fast. And trees go by very quickly. There are not a lot of people that have flown in a P-51. That is amazing. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Once again, I know people, so I can help you on that. But, um, yeah, yeah, it's, um, I, I tell you, this, this is great. No, I, I feel like I've met a friend. Um, but 
honestly, the mission of what y'all do, and and the beauty of it is, if obviously a hurricane hits the coast or whatever, I mean, you're here from Mississippi as well as being able to project power and be able to project, you know, aid and help halfway around the world. You can do it right here in the state as well. Absolutely. I mean, what an asset for the state of Mississippi. It's 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 amazing. And you know, we currently have nine jets, which uh, is almost double what the other guard units any other guard unit that has C-17s has, and we do more of the airlift than, dare I say, I don't need trouble. If we put all the other guard units together, I, I, I think we could beat their productivity with just our unit. That's how busy and that's how much lift we do for the Air Force. I know it uh, is. We, we are the premier guard unit at C-17. It I is pretty amazing. Yeah. You, you just, yeah. I mean, y'all are I mean, you fly over my house. So, yeah, I I can tell when you're busy. And um, you do come in. And I love it, too, because it's like it's such a big plane. It's kind of – I'm still the kid that runs out and looks up in the sky when one flies over. So it's still really – Hey, I still do it, too. I really do. And I can hear – I can just about tell you what kind of jet it is, especially when you start getting into the F-22s and the fighters with the different intakes, the different sounds. I st- I'm still looking up in the air, too, just like I always have. I really – it's a bug that gets in you, and, and it really – it stays with you. You can't ever shake it. So you fly commercial as well. What do you normally fly when you're I, flying commercial? Um, I fly 767 and 737. Okay. So I stay with Boeing. That's cool. Well, Colonel, I thank you for taking the time uh, to visit with us today and tell us a little bit about the, the incredible mission that the 172nd performs every single day and, of course, your service to our country as well. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Pleasure to be here. I'll probably talk too much, but thank you for having me. No, no, you never talk too much on the show. That's that's the whole point of it. And I just appreciate it. I love getting to talk to you and getting to know you a little bit today. Thank you. You too. Absolutely, sir. It's time for us to take a quick break. And when we return, we're going to welcome to the show Captain Benjamin Ayibor from Columbus Air Force Base in Columbus, Mississippi. So stay tuned. This is Now You're Talking on MPB. Thank you. Southern Remedies, Relatively Speaking, is a show that explores issues that relate to you and your family. To find out what we're all about, subscribe to the podcast by using any podcast app or by downloading our MPB public media app. You're listening to Now You're Talking on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Marshall Ramsey of Mississippi Today. Columbus Air Force Base is the home of the 14th Flying Training Wing of Air Education and Training Command's 19th Air Force. The 14th Flying Training Wing mission statement is train world-class pilots. The wing's mission focuses on specialized undergraduate pilot training, and each day the wing flies an average 260 sorties on its three parallel runways and maintains more than 900 highly trained individuals capable of deploying at a moment's notice. And so in with me today to talk a little bit more about it is Captain Benjamin I. Yebor from Columbus Air Force Base in Columbus, Mississippi. Uh, Captain, thank you so much for joining us. And you've got a really cool call sign. Tell us what the call sign is and tell us how you got that call sign. <laughs> well, first of all, thanks for uh, having me on today. I'm Captain Benjamin Ayibor, call sign Omni. So usually it's proper fighter pod etiquette to, to buy them a drink before you 
you ask them what their call sign is. So if you need a flat reply, that's probably man. I tell you what, you're you're good. Just go ahead and write it down, and I owe you one. <laughs> well, you know, the other thing too is that realize that it's probably filled with ten percent truth, if you will. So don't always believe the full embellishment. <laughs> so at least for me, you know, I would just say, you know, Omni, pretty versatile. I can do it all. I guess. Okay. <laughs> So I was, I was going to ask on that. I didn't know if it was like something, because I know I had a friend who was a naval aviator, and he got his because he screwed up something. And so I didn't know if that was how it worked in the Air Force or if it was because you got it because it was a really cool situation, and that's how you ended up with it. Yeah, so I, I would say on that note, a lot of call signs are related to some story that something probably got screwed up, usually more funny than anything. Right. But they're all over the place. It depends. Definitely. Hey, thank you so much for taking the time on that. You know, even people in Mississippi, I don't think, realize everything that goes on up at Columbus Air Force Base. I mean, it is huge. It has had a long history, started during World War II as a training base, and uh, kind of went away for a while and came back and actually had B-52s there for a while, was actually a bomber base as well. But y'all do a lot, and you're one of the main training bases that basically creates pilots for the Air Force. Yeah, so as far as numbers are concerned, Columbus puts up the most pilots, if you will, numbers-wise, out of any of the uh, pilot training bases. So definitely a lot of a lot of work going on in people's backyards that they don't maybe quite notice. Yeah, over here in the Jackson area a little bit, I see occasionally the um, the T6 Texan 2 comes over occasionally and lands a little bit. So you, you do take advantage of the runways over this way. We talked a little bit with our previous guests a little bit about that plane. That's one of the, the primary trainers that you use over there, isn't it? Yeah, so that, that is the primary trainer. That's what everybody is going to start that first flying phase of training and so everybody if you're going to go fly tankers or fighters everybody's going to start in that t6 and yeah as you mentioned we'll we utilize all the the surrounding airports in jacksonville birmingham and we'll even go into alabama you know and and tennessee so kind of let's run through the whole pilot training thing because we were talking a little bit with the last guest a little bit about top gun and i want to get your review of that as well uh because i am just interested to see what pilots think about you know a movie about flying but if I want to become a pilot, right, so I'm 18, I just come out of Top Gun saying, guess what, I want to see, I want to be a pilot. What is kind of the process for somebody when they go into the Air Force to get into aviation and to become a pilot of some form? Because I know there's different types of pilots that you have as well. Yeah, so first and foremost, all the pilots in the uh, Air Force are officers. So that's going to require at least a four-year degree. Okay. And I have to go through a commissioning source. Most people have heard of the Air Force Academy. That's a school out in Colorado Springs, and you'll, you'll get your degree and commission out of there. A lot of people have done ROTC at colleges, so you'll do that you know, while going to college and taking your classes and then potentially commission out of there. Or if you're just someone off the street that already went to school, has a degree, and, and wants to be an officer or a pilot, uh, you'll go into a normal recruiter's office and say, hey, I want to be a pilot, and then apply for a commission that way, and then go to OTS in Maxwell, Alabama, and then you'll go to officer training school and get your commission that way. So step one is you got to get a commission. So Going to school, get good grades, eat your vegetables, you know, standard stuff that you would do probably to pursue any other career. And then once you get that commission, now they kind of sort through, hey, what jobs are available and what can you get? Standard Air Force answer is going to be the needs of the Air Force come first, right? Everybody wants to be a pilot, maybe. Or I would say a lot more people want to be pilots than we have slots for. So there's a process the Air Force goes through. So I would say even for me, based on hopes and dreams, man, I I wanted to be a pilot. But if I ended up being a a WISDO, if I ended up being a airborne battle manager or an arcade pot, I was fine with that, but it's a lot of kind of luck there as far as if you get picked up to be a pilot. And then at that point, if you do get a pilot slot, now you're going to get orders and go to a pilot training base. You could end up at Columbus. You could end up at Shepard or Laughlin or, or even at Vance. And then pilot training, three phases of training. We're undergoing a new syllabus change now. The Air Force 
just kind of change of hot train a little bit to try to meet the needs of today and try to bring a little bit more technology on board. But phase one is academics, ground stuff, learn about your survival equipment, you know, stuff like that. Phase two, if you will, is that primary trainer T6 that we talked about. And then phase three is going to be the next step of what you track. So that could be the T1, so this little small white business jet-looking aircraft that you see flying around Columbus, or you could track fighter-bomber to be the T-38, the little slender jet that you see. So after T-6s, you'll track in one of those directions, and then once you finish that third track, you'll get your wings, and then you'll go off to fly whatever selection that you happen to get. Same thing applies towards the end of pod training. You'll, you'll make a dream sheet of what you want to fly and then the needs of the Air Force, what's available at the time, how well you did in class, all factors through, and then you'll get assigned what airframe you're going to fly. What was your so, story? Tell us yours. My story? So I started out as a crew chief. I enlisted in 2009. I kind of came to the Air Force, and I just said, oh, I'll, I'll do anything. Uh, I ended up working on F-16s, so I became a fighter crew chief. I was stationed out at Nellis. I was fortunate enough to be surrounded by a lot of good people. I got PRK surgery, so before, I didn't have the eyes to be a pilot, and after that, I was like, wow, I think I could be a pilot. I had to go back to school, finish a degree, and I did that, and I applied for a commission. I was lucky enough to get picked up for a pod slot. I went to OTS down to Maxwell. I got a pilot slot at Shepard Air Force Base in Texas, and that's where I went to pilot training. Standard stuff, man. Study hard, work hard, and then hopefully the rest will take care of itself. I wanted to track fighters growing up in that kind of fighter career field, being a fighter crew chief. That's just something I wanted to do. But, you know, obviously, it's the, from that perspective, it's the coolest thing. I, I've seen, you know, Top Gun as a kid, and I worked on jets. I'm like, this is this is pretty awesome. So I'd like to continue my Air Force career, but maybe try to fly now. And I was lucky enough to get selected to fly the F-15C model. So they nice. air to the C fighter. So what you see in Top Gun, a lot of dog fighting, that's what the C model specializes in air-to-air. So I uh, went to the B course after that. You learn how to fly the Eagle. And then I spent an assignment down in New Orleans flying with the Air National Guard. Even though I'm active duty, I was just stationed with the Air National Guard flying with them. So I just finished up that assignment not too long ago, and then I'm uh, I'm now at Columbus Air Force Base. I'm currently at the 49th Fighter Training Squadron, and I teach what's called IFF, Intro to Fighter Fundamentals. So if you track fighters, right after pod training, you're going to come to IFF, and you're going to learn the basics of pretty much how to employ your aircraft. So pod training, we're just teaching you how to fly, and IFF is that next step to how to employ. So take your aircraft and, for lack of better terms, use it as a weapon. And that's a little... It's a shorter course, about 10 weeks, and that's to prepare them once they get to the jet that they're going to fly, that they're better prepared to handle, because that's a big change, flying a much bigger and faster jet with more sensors and, and, and more stuff going on. I just interviewed Lieutenant Colonel Lance Bolin, who sounds like he had the very similar same track as you. He flew F-15s also down in Louisiana. Now he's flying the C-17 up at the 172nd. But that's incredible, by the way, that you started out doing the crew chief and you said, no, I want to fly, and you did all that because that just shows you that you've got apparently a lot of drive on that. Flying the F-15, you know, that's been America's superiority fighter for, like, since the mid-'70s. I know the F-22 kind of replaced it, but it's still an incredible aircraft and a lot of fun. I mean, do you get to fly a lot now, or you're, do you go up in the T-38 with the students? Yeah, so now on my – I guess follow-on assignment flow after that first assignment in the Eagle. I'm back, obviously, at Columbus Air Force Base to, to teach the next generation. So everything that I did and learned while in the Eagle, now I'm, I'm applying that to train the next wingman, if you will, when they go out there, which is which is awesome in its in its own respect. Obviously, the things we do in the T-38 are much simpler form, right? It doesn't have a radar. It doesn't right. have weapons. So it's simplified, but, man, it, yeah, it is fun. So 
I, I would say that coming back to the T38, obviously it makes me miss the, the Eagle. Obviously the Eagle's got great big wings, tons of power. It, it does what you ask of it. And the, the T38 from that standpoint is, you know, it's got fins for wings. It's, it's, it's a little bit slower. So, but it, like I said, it's, you know, pluses and minuses. The grass is always greener, but it's, it's cool to come back. Yeah, it's, I would imagine it's hard to give up an airplane that literally will go straight up. <laughs> I mean, ballistic, yeah. you know, F-15 is just an amazing aircraft, to say the least, yeah. on that. How many classes a year do you do y'all train over at Columbus? Is it, it's because it sounds like it's it sounds like about a half a year it takes to get through this program. Currently, 54 weeks. Okay, so it is a year, okay. About more like a year, yeah. and that's on a perfect schedule. Weather's not a factor that, you know, jets are not having any maintenance issues. Won't behold, reality happens, right? Weather right. happens all the time. So give or take, but it, it takes about a year to get through all of pot training. And then for us at ISF, it's like I said, about a 10-week course, you're tracking fighters. And then roughly every three weeks, we got a new class starting. So that, that's how oh, wow. we, we don't see them as long. They do plenty of flying in that short 10 weeks, and they grow quite a bit. But most people will come to Columbus, and they'll be here, obviously, at least a year. And you might honestly show up from your commissioning source, and you might wait five months to even start. You know, it just it kind of depends on the ebb and flow of where we're at. So Yeah, I looked it up. I think, you know, if you include all the people that are on base, I mean, it would be like the 14th largest city in Mississippi, the Air Force Base <laughs> would be. So y'all y'all got a lot of people running around there. We do. Definitely on that. Um, it's time for us to take a quick break. Stay tuned. This is Now You're Talking on MPB Think Radio. <laughs> When you look at your vehicle, think of MPB. Need to get rid of your ride? Donate it by calling 877-MPB-4-CAR. Need to have some work done on your truck? Listen to AutoCorrect Thursdays at 10, Saturdays at 11. An MPB license plate reminds you that MPB is with you wherever you go. Go to your county office and ask for an MPB car tag. MPB and cars, better together. You're listening to Now You're Talking on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Marshall Ramsey of Mississippi Today. In with me today is Captain Benjamin I. Yebor from Columbus Air Force Base in Columbus, Mississippi. Uh, Captain, so a student will fly about 200 hours during that 54-week period. They're coming out of there with with a lot of flight experience, so you're not just sticking pilots out there without experience. Yeah, so what's interesting about that number is, is generally speaking, 200 hours is, is not a lot of time, right? Yeah. But the way we've structured our training is like you can't cut much more of that to get a better product right, right? you hear about the pot shortage in the airlines you hear about the pot shortage in the air force we are doing the most we can with i would argue as least hours as you possibly can and realizing that a lot of the airmanship that they're going to get they're going to grow out there once they get to their airframe yeah same thing pot training is, is somewhat a controlled environment right we're going to the same airspace every day we're going to the same out bases a lot, right? When you get out to whatever airplane airframe you're flying, you know, you're going to different places. You're traveling all over the world. That the airmanship you're gonna grow there later. So it is a decent amount of hours in a year, but like I said, a lot of that growing is gonna happen once they leave pilot training. Well that's really smart too for them to bring back seasoned pilots to come back and be instructors as well. That makes I mean they did that in World War Two, so it makes a lot of sense for them to keep doing that. Yeah, so like for my example, it's not uncommon to take somebody after their first ops assignment and bring them back to be an instructor. Oh wow. but, you know, if you think about the year that you spent in pilot training, depending on your airframe, it might be another year where you're going through the follow-on. So for like for me and the Eagle, it was approaching a year to, to learn to fly the Eagle. And then you get to your first base and you kind of get your spin up and then you might spend three years in assignment. Call that five years. That's five years of learning how to fly and how to fly well. 
So even coming back to an assignment like pilot training, right, I would say not that it's tough because obviously the IPs here, you know, some will fly two, three times a day, right? But, for example, we're, we're not necessarily going anywhere on the, on the weekends, maybe across country here or there, but it gives you a little bit more structured lifestyles as opposed to deployments yeah. and PDY schedules and stuff like that. So potentially a little break after a big pipeline as opposed to just going from ops unit to ops unit, uh, which arguably is a much higher pace. But, yeah, bringing some knowledge back to what's happening in our combat air forces or mobility air forces and then trying to implement that and the new pilots is, is definitely good. Well, definitely the Air Force has been busy, particularly since 2001, um, the war on terror. That definitely stretched airframes and pilots alike. There was a lot of a lot of work. Yeah, I was like I said, I was talking with Colonel Boland about the their mission, you know, flying back and forth to Germany and Iraq with the ambulance, that part of their mission. Well, in the same way with the fighters. I mean, y'all have been deployed and back over. Now that we're not in active war zones, are y'all – as busy or you're being able to kind of catch your breath a little bit surprisingly i would feel like it's very similar so if you think about what you just said we've kind of been in a stance uh post 9-11 right that's 20 20 plus years yeah. of kind of active operations so if anything when we're not deployed we're trained right so really maybe the deployment schedule shifted a little bit but as far as how we train at home it's, it's a very similar pace <laughs> right you got to be ready for the phone to ring and say hey we're going to X country, right, to, to do this, right? So it's not like you let your guard down when you're at home. The training is just as, as strong as it is. You know, we don't train at half speed, if you will, if we're not deploying. We still train the same way day in and day out. So, you, like I said, your deployment schedule might have shifted since season operations, but no, we still train just as hard. Yeah, definitely. Well, I guess there's always that need for pilots, definitely on that. All right, let's, let's talk a little bit about Top Gun Maverick because I figured that would be fun. <laughs> You know, I mean, like I said, anytime I see a movie about the media, I'm like, yeah, whatever, right? You know, because I've been doing this for a long time. But I'll tell you personally, I love the first Top Gun. It came out when I literally, right after I graduated high school, I'm surprised I didn't end up becoming a pilot. I think I was just lazy, and that's why I didn't do it. But loved it. I had kind of was a little nervous about the new one, but the flying looked good. So I went in for airplanes and came out with, wow, there was character development. I didn't see that coming. But I want to hear what your thoughts are about the movie, because frankly, You've actually done some of that stuff before, so you you know know what's real and what's well BS. So, what were yeah. you, what were some of your thoughts about it? So first and foremost, when I when I went to go see the movie, I, I was going to try my darndest to remove my fighter pilot brain because let's be honest, it's, it's Hollywood, and and I would say sometimes what we do is not as glamorous, but obviously you know it's it's for entertainment, right? So we're gonna we're gonna try to make it engaging as as we possibly can. You mean you don't play <laughs> volleyball every day and sing at pianos? Man. I wish we had time to go play volleyball on the beach or whatever. But uh, <laughs> on the, you know, yeah, on the ten tom, you know. <laughs> I yeah, but but from that standpoint, like I said, just as a, a viewer from entertainment, like a fan of aviation in general, I, I thought it was a fantastic movie, right? And then you know, standard, there is the fighter pilot myth in me that there was some type of experience that I would say that maybe other people are getting to see a glimpse of, of what it is that we do, which I think is cool because I don't think there's really been anything prior to this. Other than Top Gun itself, which arguably is outdated on portraying the experience, right? Now having cameras in the jets, seeing people's faces and emotions and the Gs and, and having some type of story, like I said, I think that actually portrays kind of what we do now, right? Maybe not in the same fashion of, of what's reality, but like I said, it gave people a glimpse. And then obviously, like, as far as the realism of what jets are using, how to employ them, and this is the scenario and how we do that, like, yeah, that's a whole other conversation that the 
rest of the fighter community like we'll just sit here and poke holes in and all that stuff but uh but no i from that standpoint i enjoyed it thought it was it was a good movie and then and there was parts of me during certain scenes that i could feel what what i'm looking at as the actors are feeling right maybe you when you watch the movie go like hey you're thinking hey that's the fighter pot <laughs> the fighter pot me as i see a civilian riding the back seat struggling with g's which i think is <laughs> hilarious right you know, like i know exactly what that guy is feeling and to me, it looks like he's not having a good time. I don't, you know, he's he's doing his best, but I just thought those parts were were, were interesting there. Yeah, I've never flown in. A, I've never flown in an F eighteen or an, you know, obviously with in an F fifteen or anything like that. I have flown in a P fifty one and I have flown in a T six Texan, the the old one. And uh, I, you know, there were a few times I was thinking I cannot throw up in this nice man's airplane. That would just be a very rude thing to do. And there were some times when you could tell that those actors probably did do that quite a bit because they were not looking very comfortable. Yeah. So from that standpoint of what it's like to fly in a jet. It is unlike anything. I don't even, in some ways, I don't compare it to flying. So when I was a crew chief, I was lucky enough to get a ride in the back of an F-16. I had been a crew chief for six, seven years at that point. At the time, I, I was a, a private pilot, so I flew little planes. I'm familiar with aviation. I flew about an hour and a half, just single ship is out in the, out Nellis. So we're going out in the range out there. Probably about halfway through, I started to get passively airsick, which really? I would say is like, I'm not feeling good and my body wants to throw up. Uh, but I was unable to. Uh, I was just having a bad time back there. It was still an awesome experience, right? You land, you peel yourself out of the airplane. They're like, hey, we don't need you for work today. Uh, <laughs> so I, I was like, I'm going to go home. I go out to my truck, and then, uh, so this is about 45 minutes after I landed, I threw up, finally. And then I went home, and I slept for four hours. Mind you, it was like 10 o'clock in the morning. It destroyed me. And then the next day after I recovered and recount the effects of what just happened, I literally spent the next two weeks going, how how can I do that again? Like, I be my body was not ready for that, but that was such an incredible experience that, spoiler alert, I was like, the only way to do that is become a pilot, right? And right. That kind of, that was another catalyst in my journey to, to trying to become a fighter pot. To me, at the time, it was incredible to know the pots could operate at this level. They do it two, three times a day, and then they, they go inside and have Taco Bell like nothing just happened, right? You know, <laughs> you build up tolerance and you get used to it and, and things get better over time but to me it was just it was incredible so all that to say that when i watch these actors i'm like it's very hard to get time in a jet right very few people get that yeah and it's hard for your body to adapt and really when you throw up it's not motion sickness it's almost your body is confused and that's its only natural response is to try to make yourself feel better so yeah i mean tom cruise actually put together a training program i mean he started him out like in a Cessna, and then he put him in a, a small plane and did some acrobatic. Then he put him in a small jet, and then they put him in the F eighteen. And they got, I mean, they did like eight hundred hours of filming for that, for just like two hours of movie. It was pretty incredible. It was, and like I said, I think they, I did it. I think they did a good job at portraying that, and obviously he prepared them probably the best way possible. That's why I said it to me, it wasn't an unrealistic experience or what you viewed, but obviously having done this for a living or doing it for a living that like I've probably a little bit more of a keen eye of what I'm looking at compared to. Oh well, yeah. Well, that's, what's fun. I mean, that's the thing you actually know what's real and what's, what's Hollywood. And so that's kind of fun on that. So if somebody called you up and said, you've got two weeks to train for a star Wars Canyon mission where you got to blow up the death star. I mean, would that be a practical mission? And and other people have talked about it from that standpoint of how you would decide to do that mission i don't think so but obviously it makes for a great movie oh, you, know, sure. you probably wouldn't call all your best and brightest together and then have them do the mission so let's just pretend for a second the mission didn't go well right well you just lost all your best and brightest right a good point so train in the air force and in the navy is that when you go out to your squadron it's more like you figure out you're going to do the mission and you call the squadron and say hey usually they're going to talk to their their weapons officer and say hey this is the mission i need you to do 
go train you guys to do it. And then anybody can accomplish that mission, right? You might have some pots that are stronger than others or more experienced than others, but you're not going to call your best and brightest and then have them train for two weeks and then go do that, right? No, you just call a squadron, right? Where right. It, w- it wouldn't make it. Why do we have all these squadrons if we're just going to call the same 10 guys to do every mission, right? So that's the cool part. We all train to a level that, like, hey, man, here's the mission. Go do it. Have you ever had any missions, though, that you you, know, you came into it and you're, like, going, okay, this is going to be really tough, and, you know, and studying you did it? Well, from my standpoint as a air-to-air and air security fighter, the good news is, and maybe you've seen the news, yeah. we haven't shot down a fighter in quite some time. I would like to argue because we're doing our job well, right? <laughs> that's right. We, we haven't been in any air-to-air conflicts. I have plenty of buddies flying other airplanes and strike eagle in the A-10, and, and yes, they've had those same experiences. So me, not personally, no, yeah. just based on the mission set, and then where I happen to be deployed to, that like not necessarily things that would happen, and if something did happen, you'd probably read about it on the news. But definitely some, for lack of better terms, missions a little bit more interesting than others, depending on where you are in the world and, and the things that you're hearing on the radio and the, and maybe the things that you see with your sensors. But, but yeah, there's definitely times that it's a little bit more heightened, if you will. Yeah, I had a, a friend of mine who flew an A-10 in the first Gulf War, and he was on the whole highway to death thing. And, you know, he said, yeah. I don't really want to talk about it. That wasn't a lot of fun. You know, and he said it was a turkey shoot, but he was, said it was pretty interesting. All right, so there was a scene in the movie, and the thing I enjoyed about it, you know, I mean, I kind of relate to Maverick and the fact that what I do for a living is kind of going away, right? So not radio, mind you, but cartooning. And so I was like, yeah, I kind of get that. You know, he's still, you know, he's older and he's kind of hanging on because he loves what he's doing. And But the Ed Harris character, the admiral, the old crusty admiral that came in and said, you know, your job will not be around anymore. You know, Mr. You know, the, he was into drones at that point. Yep. But seriously, is that a huge threat to manned pilots? I mean, are is there going to be another generation of fighters probably after the fifth generation? And then do you think it'll all go to drones or do you think there's still room for for pilots in the cockpit so this is this is omni's opinion this is not based off of like top secret now i don't have any inside data if you will but based off of what i know and and the job i've done so far uh in the future absolutely yes there's that day is going to come but in my humble opinion not not yet i don't i don't think we're there yet if you will uh i think that in the way of drones and you know people have talked about uh like with the B-21 and, and loyal wingmen and, and a type of drone that, like, flies with you as a man pilot. Like, yeah, I'm sure that's a, a thing that will be uh, happening in the future. But as far as you talk about, you know, say fighter jets that go out in the, and, and do the mission with you sitting in a controlling station somewhere else, I, I think we're not not in my generation, if you will. I don't think the, <laughs> the young people training now, I don't think necessarily in their generation. But, yeah, I, you know, sixth gen, the next, Again, I think it's man. I would guess it's man, uh, unless there's new leaps in technology. Seventh gen, maybe. I don't know. But I said in the future it's coming, but I wouldn't say as early as, as that character, Ed Harris's character, I would say. But same thing, they've got the Mach 10 plane they're flying around, so maybe it's a different timeline. Yeah, seriously. Um, what are the odds that anybody can survive uh, bailing out it, of a crash of, at Mach 10? So, I mean, he would have been jello, wouldn't he have? My fighter pot brain, when that happened, I was like, oh, that, that didn't end well. And then that showed the skyline of all the wreckage coming back down. I was, in my brain, I was like, wow, Maverick's dead. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, yeah, very, very slim. You're, you're pink mist at that point at that speed. Yeah. So. Probably a good time to wrap it up. I just want to say thank you for, number one, your service to the country. Thank you for what you do. And thanks for spending time with us today. This was fun. I appreciate your support. And I'm, uh, I'm glad to lend a little insight and perspective. Yeah.
Thank you so much. All right. Well, we want to thank you for listening and thank our guests, Lieutenant Colonel Lance Bolin and Captain Benjamin Ayubor for joining us today. Hey, if you want to hear this show again or any past episodes, you can listen on our podcast on your favorite podcast app or on your MPB public media app. Now You're Talking is a production of MPB Think Radio. It's produced by Jermaine Flood. And join us next week at 10 a.m. for another great conversation right here on MPB Think Radio. Y'all have a great week. Thanks for listening to this MPB Think Radio podcast. MPB depends on support from listeners. So if you can, please contribute today at mpbonline.org.